Howdy. Didn't you have facial hair? I did. Lots of okay. it. Okay. Okay. That's what, that's what I thought. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not tripping. Nope. Nope. You're definitely not tripping. But, uh, but that is the thing that happened. Um, as did 114 hours across two weeks. So uh, my apologies last night, sir. I didn't get out of there till about two o'clock yesterday. Uh, this two o'clock this morning and was back there again at eight o'clock this morning. So, um, so things happen. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to apologize to me. Don't worry about it. All right. In five, four, three, two, one. In a world where the Batman is arriving and the box office is praying for his success, we find Chad Metz looking into the darkness, yelling about persnickety film nerds. <laughs> Welcome to the Movies on the Brain podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brian C. Wood. And with me is the persnickety film nerd disliking Chad Metz. Welcome to another weird, wild, and wacky week of the Batman. Yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. The long-awaited Matt Reeves Batman movie, which was promised to us low all the way back in July of 2015, has now finally made its way to theaters, or will make its way to theaters. Uh, Chad and I have a pre-screening tomorrow night. Um, an embargo has already lifted on reviews. And uh, excitement about this movie is around is is hitting a fever pitch. So, Chad, tell us <clears throat> or talk to us about the reception, the critical reception for this fair Matt Reeves Batman. Well, the reception is pretty much what I thought it was going to be. Uh, it seems to be it seems like it's going to be a critical darling. Um, I know earlier in the day it was. Rotten Tomatoes had it in the upper 90%, but I think last time I saw it, it was around 89, but it's already certified fresh. So, you know, that all the, most of the, uh, the reviews coming in are overwhelmingly positive. Um, my, pers my persnicketiness was because I figured those people that would call themselves like film nerds and, and, true lovers of film as art would Cinema love this movie. Nerds. Cinema yeah. nerds. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cinephiles. <clears throat> yes, all of them. I figured the people that fit that profile that saw the movie, uh, if the movie was what I thought it was, I figured they would like it because um, it would, as a tweet was given to me earlier, uh, gave me these words, would, uh, would transcend the genre. And just that sentence, just the, that phrase of words is so, uh, so pretentious. And it, it relays an underlying theme of not really caring about the genre, which is comic book movies. So when you have a movie that gives them an excuse to say, look, this, this, this comic book movie doesn't do things I think is wrong with cinema. It is it is actually art above everything else. I knew this would be this huge film to come out and be like, I like the movie. Uh now, 
you know, that's that's fine. We'll see the movie tomorrow, and I promise I will reserve my judgment until I see the movie. Chances are I'm going to like it. I, I'm fully prepared for that. It's just I this movie, um, not not to the extent of Logan, because I think Logan was firmly up his own ass, much like Joker. Uh, those self-serious genre transcending, they were purposely trying to transcend the genre. I don't think this will be that, but those same kind of people are going to flock to this, and that's that's where my uh, you know, my uh, my ire is kind of gone right now. Um, I can I can understand where you're coming from on that. Um, mainly because <clears throat> that's what this dude was hired to do. Um, this dude was hired to make a Batman movie that was unique and different. And he was hired right about the same time uh, Todd Phillips was hired to do the Joker. And they had like five other spinning plates. Uh, this was about the same time that they were talking about. Um, <clears throat> this was also about the time that they were talking about the Justice League. It was the same time they were talking about a Man of Steel 2. It was the same time they were talking about Green Lantern Corps. But also having this really wild and different thing. Remember. All of this is born out of Ben Affleck failing to come up with a pitch for the bat for his Batman movie. That's where all of this stems from. This stems from Affleck and and his team failing to come up with an idea because of all the stuff that Affleck was going through for a continuation of that Batman. And as we've established, and as you've established on many of the solo podcasts, um, Warner Brothers has a long history of. The only thing they can get right and wrap their heads around is darkness, no parents. <laughs> and so and so it's just easy to green light a Batman movie. And they want another Batman movie and, and uh, Affleck couldn't give it to them. So they turned to their other favorite darling. And what Matt Reeves did with two Planet of the Apes movies that made money at the box office and were also critically loved. <clears throat> He had worked with Andy Serkis, another experienced VFX heavy director and specialist, um, who he brought on board this movie as well. Um, like he fit the mold of what they wanted, which was an art tour. But where he differs from, say, Todd Phillips, or where he differs from uh, uh, from our Ford versus Ferrari gentleman, uh, James. Uh, Mangold. Yeah. Where, where he differs from Mangold and Phillips is that he is a fan of the material the way that Favreau is a fan of Marvel Comics. Um, if you go back and you read the book um, on the making of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, he didn't pitch them originally, want to pitch them originally on Iron Man. He wanted to pitch them on Hulk. Because Hulk was the bigger name property, and Hulk was the 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 bigger of the two star uh, comical characters at the time. Um, but Favreau has a love for the comics, and it's what makes him such a favored director in the Star Wars universe now is that he has such that deep love for Star Wars, and it bleeds through in every fl- every frame. That is where Reeves dovetails from the other two, in that he is a Batman fan first and foremost, and he's. 
he's got the, he's walking that edge in a good enough way where he's not in that position of JJ Abrams and um and our old our our you know um our other good friend who wrote uh, both Justice League and uh and Rise of Skywalker who uh you know went about talking after the uh the premiere and couldn't keep his mouth shut about how they had the whiteboard that they were literally just checking things off and it's like we, we had a whiteboard of things that we thought would look cool in the movie and then we actually had a whiteboard we were checking them off as we went it's like bro you don't actually say that um that that is not who matt reeves is he's not gonna do fan service for the purposes of fan service, but he's such a fan of the material and says such a love and understanding of the characters. And he is such a talented writer um, that in visual story artist that it's going to be really good. And me and Jim Vavita both said this the moment that he was hired because we, we were eight, we're apes fans and we saw those two eight films. We knew what he was capable of. And so the doubt, the thing that this was going to be a very good Batman movie never crossed our mind. It was always going to be that. The matter is how it was going to be received by the general public and how the fan community was going to receive it. And I think those are the, we have one half of that now. We know how the critical uh, bodies have, have taken to it. Now we got to find out how the fan bases get, are going to are take to this. Yeah, that is the... That's still a question going into that. Uh, I mean, I know Warner Brothers has broken out the bank for the marketing on this thing, uh, and but I, I can't gauge what uh, the general audience really thinks about this movie. Uh, a lot of that is because I'm not, you know, pandemic. I'm not around a lot of people to like kind of feel um, what what they think about these things, but. So my feeling right now is that people are aware of it. I just don't know if they are excited for it because you can't Batman, help but be aware of it. <laughs> yeah, it's around every corner. Uh, but like, are they excited because it's Batman? Uh, are they excited because they know it's going to be another big kind of event movie to bring people out? Or are they just like, this is another Batman and specifically, are they like, this is another, you know, dark kind of Nolan-esque take on Batman. Why do I need to see this again? I don't think that's the case. I think this is going to make lots of money. I think uh, with the inclusion of China, which... And I, Russia. And Russia. And um, Russia. As of right now, Russia... Disney pulled all their stuff from Russia, so I would not be surprised if Warner Brother pull, pulls theirs. They can afford to lose Russia. I don't know if they want to really you lose China, but you kind of, I would think you kind of have to do both if you're going to do one. But as of right now, they have China, and that should solidify a billion dollars. Uh, if it doesn't do a billion dollars, that's who boy. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen from there because at this point, I fully expect that Warner Brothers believes that this thing should make a billion dollars. I think it's foolish to think any movie, save for uh, Infinity War and Endgame, 
will make a billion dollars. But the, I, those two movies, you know, you built up to it and you knew everybody was going to go see it. Everything else, I don't think you, if, especially if it's your first go around, I don't think expecting a billion dollars is smart. But that's Warner Brothers and and this is Batman and this is their thing that always comes through for them. So it's probably going to make a billion dollars. It's all probably moot. But if it doesn't, and we know that they're heavily reactionary. It's the reason why we're here in the first place. They react. They don't stick with things. We don't. It'd be. I don't know what's going to happen if that. If it does fall short. I mean, I think they're going to green light a sequel anyway. I mean, like, you know, I I think they're going to green light a sequel anyway because like it's their artistic guy. And whatever happens, it's going to make money. It's just not going to make, it, it may not make No Way Home money, but nothing's going to make No Way Home money. And the strategic uh, release date calendar, the way that they've dealt with this, they've got a four-week run with no competition. So, That's right. So, I mean, they'll have time to accrue money. It's just, my the thing that comes that I have a question of, and I'll have more of an answer of this on our reactionary podcast when we do that. But No Way Home is fun. No Way Home is a blast. It, it's not just a nostalgia hit, although it has a lot of those too. It's just genuinely a fun movie. So is Uncharted, by the way. Just genuinely a fun movie. <laughs> because Tom Holland is a charismatic guy. And like you want to root for that dude in anything that he's in, even when he's playing a dope fiend in a, in a Russo Brothers movie called Cherry that no one else saw. Um, like you want to root for that dude. Like you don't want any bad things to happen to that dude. I question whether or not this interpretation in this detective style noir that they're doing is going to be one that demands repeat viewings. Um, Interstellar is a great movie. I don't know very many people who went to go to the theaters to see it more than once. You know, that's the kind of thing that I'm, I'm talking about. Like, you're going to need to go more than once to build up that kind of longstanding success. I mean, No Way Home's still banking a billion dollars a day. It's been out for three months. You know, Tom Holland is two of the five, top five highest grossing movies of the last two weekends. Two, because he's still in Spider-Man No Way Home and Uncharted is ruling the box office. So... Yeah, contract negotiations keep going up for that dude. But like, is it gonna is are people gonna willingly sit through two and a half hours of a dark and gritty Batman Noir detective story? And we'll know more, I think, about that that and how we'll have what the general audience's reaction to it will be after tomorrow night. Yeah, well from the from the reviews I've read. While this is clearly dark, I don't. I I didn't get a sense that it wasn't fun, at like in a type of fun. Uh, so I don't think I don't think that will be like I don't think when people watch it, they'll they'll come away not having some sort of fun. It might not be the you know when people think of fun, they normally think of you know rowdy cheerful crowd kind of thing i think this would be fun in a different sense i think people will enjoy it 
so I but to people that are on the fence, they might that might not want that may think just from everything that's presented that it does look dark and dour. And I think that's the key. It can be dark and gritty. You can't be dour. You can't just be a stick in the mud. You can't be dark uh, dawn of justice. No, yes, that yes, that movie it beats you over like it's dark and then it beats you over the head with just bad feelings the whole time. You begin uh, and end the movie with a funeral, Chad. Yeah. Yeah, that God, I still can't believe they let him kill Superman in the second movie and thought it was a good idea and want to blame him for anything. You let him do it. You knew what he wanted to do. You let him do it. And, and according to Chris Terrio, who you were talking about earlier, he wanted to do way worse stuff. They, whoever wrote it, whatever script they're working from before he got there, they wanted to do way worse stuff. So again, the studio does not engender feelings of hopefulness or competence when it comes to these things. So, but I think people will find enjoyment in the Batman. People that I, but I know there are people that are looking at this and it's like, this again, just dark and dank. Like, with, I, again, I think this movie is going to make a billion dollars. I think overall, I'm going to enjoy it. I will say it right now and I'll probably say it again tomorrow. This is even without seeing it, I'm going to say this is probably not the Batman, a take of Batman that I wanted, but I'm going to judge you on what it is. But to me, coming off of the Nolan trilogy and, and the, the dank, dark dourness of Batman versus Superman, you would think that you would want to take that is at least stylistically is a change enough that people don't think is that same kind of hyper-realistic darkness and like a different kind of take on Batman. But I think they're going to be rewarded by not changing their changing what worked for them last time. Did um, Gotham started this way, right? Like Gar- Gotham started the kind with a kind of grounded like realism, and then slowly but surely went off the rails, right? That that's how that went, right? The TV show, yes, yes, yeah. Because uh, that I... first six episode run is basically the. Fish Mahoney, um, John, uh, Josh, uh, Commissioner Gordon, Detective Gordon, mm-hmm. Old Boy from Life is Grounded, and a True Detective case, not the crazy bouncing off the walls stuff that you got later on down the road, right? Yeah, I, I only watched that uh, first season, and I don't even know if I watched all of it. But yes, it pretty much started, you know, Grounded. Uh, there weren't any supervillains like you know typical Batman stories. It starts with mobsters and then it gradually goes to supervillains. But I think when they gradually went to supervillains, they just went overboard. They um, went to the uh, they went to power the uh, Power Rangers episode ending battle royale type of supervillain. Yeah, and they did all that crazy stuff. For those that don't remember, they did all that crazy stuff while Bruce Wayne is still he's a part of the show. He's like. A very messed up child. A very messed up child. 
the kid in the show is probably between 14 and 16 when it started. So he's like, like pushing 20 by the time it ends. And because they've gone so far, they they you don't see Batman till the end, but you have to have Batman in the end because they've gone so far. Like the whole Rose Gallery has showed up at some point, I think almost fully formed without a Batman. So they dressed the kid up in a bat suit, and I hear that was weird. Uh, but yeah, that and that should tell you everything about that show. It started off with the you know the premise was strong, and then they just got ahead of themselves. So your two interpretations of Batman that are more that are widely known in the post Nolan era would be Gotham and Batfleck. And neither really find an inherently creative voice post uh, post Nolan, would you say? Because like you get literally two different versions of that, of the Batfleck in the two different cuts of Justice League, much less the the three different movies. Yeah, I, you're. I think everything you're saying is right, and but the reason the reason for that is because of. Warner Brother decisions. There was a clear story for for Batfleck outside of like you know the the once promised Batfleck movie directed by him. Uh, but in Snyder's work, there was a clear path for this Batman. Like it or love it, he had a plan and he knew where he wanted to take it. It was Warner Brothers reaping what they sowed with Batman versus Superman, panicking and doing all the wrong things that derailed. Well, it what it should have derailed the whole thing, but it resulted in the the uh, in the colossal jumbled mess that is uh, Justice League and Jack Zack Snyder's Justice League. But yeah, but as much as people on the internet like to champion Zack Snyder's Justice League, I still think that's like a niche product. Like fans of Zack Snyder went out and searched for that. You got a few people here or there because it's on HBO Max. They went out, searched for it. I would really be interested, like, of the casual people that turned it on, how many of them actually finished it because it's four freaking hours. So when you're talking about Justice League, I think for the wider audience, you're talking about the 2017 version in which if you watch Batman versus Superman and then you watch that, yeah, you can kind of see where he got there, but he's completely different than he was in Batman vs. Superman. So there's no there's no popular version of Batman that has come out since Nolan to dethrone Nolan uh, in the in the incarnations we've gotten since then. So I think. Everything about Batman coming into this movie is largely shaped by what we've seen from Christopher Nolan's films. And that is the running thing, right? If you even Nolan couldn't top Nolan. <laughs> um, I, I preach all the time about the fact the man had no balls. He wanted to pretend that he had balls. Then he realized I don't have to use my balls and then cut his own balls off. And like he should have killed Batman and Bruce Wayne and made it final because no one else is ever going to have that opportunity again. And he decided to give Bruce Wayne a happy little married life 
with Selena Kyle in France at a nice little diner, pissing me off for all of eternity. But like the the line that keeps coming up in every single review that I've read today has been the banner headline quote. This is the best Batman movie since The Dark Knight. And that's what's going to drive the, the media marketing on this. It's what's going to drive the critical reception of this. You haven't seen a Batman movie this good since 2008. And, you know, it's a long time ago, man. <laughs> that's, that's 27 Marvel films ago. Um, you know, so I don't know. For me, it's like, Using the Nolan thing and saying this is as good as or the best since Nolan it is an interesting place to be, I guess, because it, it kind of stands to reason that the last decade or so of, of Batman films, including the, the one that Nolan directed after the, after the Dark Knight, weren't great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's... I don't know, this... It, the whole situation is is weird mostly because i mean i don't want to go too deep into the weeds with warner brothers because you know i can and i because i don't like them but this the situation we find ourselves in is that we have a reboot of a series coming what uh four years batman versus superman was 2016 well well, no, that well, twenty sixteen. So, if we're counting that, it would be six years from from that to to Reeves version. But really and truly, we're rebooting from Nolan series to this one, which would be ten years. Because I think, yeah, Rises came out in twenty twelve. But as you said, as you bring up the the whole Snyder stuff. We have this huge roadblock in the middle of that. So this would have been akin to actually it was it would have been more time than the Spider-Man reboots have ever had, which would have been like 10 years, which we were looking at 10 years. But you have this weird situation with the Snyder stuff, which in turn is why we get this Reeve stuff. But thematically, they just like they it just doesn't seem like there's enough of a change. Like you saw the change from Sam Raimi Spider-Man to the amazing Spider-Man because everybody complained that Spider-Man was going the Batman route with the whole darkness, uh gritty, amazing Spider-Man stuff, which I don't think is actually true, but I no, can it's, see their it's, point. It's not, it's not. There's there's still a lot of happiness and there's still a lot of joking and camping around in both of those amazing Spider-Man movies that Mark Webb directed. Um, not but it's, I, I, I do like the place it leaves Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man and I'm glad that they picked up with it because you don't see him post-death of Gwen Stacy. You see him mourning Gwen Stacy at the end, but you don't see what it, how that impacts his life going forward. Yeah. But you can tell stylistically, you can kind of, there's enough of a change between Raimi and Mark Webb. Um, 
there's a there's a change. You can see a change again when it shifts to the MCU. Granted, a lot of that is because of it's joining the MCU, and you know what to expect with that. So, even if it didn't want to change, like even if the MCU's tone was closer to either one of the other two, because it's a part of that, you can differentiate this. Even with the Snyder blip, it's all because Snyder blip. Yeah. Um, most of what you're going to think of a Snyder's Batman is from Batman versus Superman. And thematically, I mean, that Batman is thematic, is probably the darkest of the three because he's just lost and he's shooting, killing people and mowing them over with the Batmobile. But they're all really, I mean, I know we're talking about Batman, he's inherently dark, but they're all rooted in the same kind of darkness. So it, it just is. There's just not enough of a change, but and if it were any other company, I think they wouldn't read the wrong things into that. I just think we're going to be stuck with this is all we're going to be stuck with with Batman from them from now on. Well, the problem and, for me is like, what's your middle ground? And and for me, I think the only middle ground I can conceivably think of is the Lego Batman movie. Because that's that's kind of your middle ground between what Schumacher was doing in the late 90s and what Nolan was doing in the mid-2000s. Like, there's your middle ground. You eat, like, that's, that's that balance in between. Because, like, I don't think the character should be either Adam West, in, Adam West Campy or Chris Nolan, you know, you know, dark. And I also have problems with Nolan's trilogy, mainly because... I maintain and have maintained for a very long time, even against Chris Nolan artists, uh, ardent fans, the man does not care about Batman. The man cares about the Rose Gallery. The man cares about having something to say about the current things that are going on in the world, but he doesn't care about Batman. Like Batman is a supporting player in his finale film. For 80% of the movie, he has broken his back and is lying in a hole and then randomly comes back for the third act. Like, he doesn't care. If you look at the structure of The Dark Knight, Nolan is clearly not as interested in the moral dilemma of Batman having to, in, in Rachel, right? He's not, he's not interested in that. He's interested in what the amazing performance he's getting from Heath Ledger and the duality of that is inherent in the um, Harvey Dent character. And he's interested in these two amazing performances he's getting from these two amazing villains. He's not interested as much in the other. And so, like, I've always maintained that he, that the only time he ever cared about Batman was to establish his origin story. And even then, he did it in a way that was different from what had been done on film to that point. No one had done Ra's al Ghul. No one had done the going away for five years and coming back to Gotham outside of the animated stuff. So like, you know, he hadn't, that hadn't been seen before. So like, and that's kind of what I'm interested in with Reeves's take because Reeves is going down the family secrets hole again, which is interesting because we got some of that in the Joker, right? We got the whole Bruce Wayne, you know, is secretly the father of the Joker thing. Right. And that got pulled out from under us, but like, 
I'm interested to see where he takes the family, the family uh, secrets thing, because I think that could be interesting. But like, ultimately, at the end of the day, Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, Aquaman, um, are basically Greek legends. And what you're basically doing is interpreting those Greek legends in your own way, in a new date, in a new time. And the way that Nolan interpreted the Batman story is going to be different from the way that Joel Schumacher adapted it, is going to be different from the way Burton adapted it, is going to be different from the way Matt Reeves adapted it, is going to be different from the way that Ben Affleck was going to adapt it. Because at the end of the day, they're all just given this base material and they're they're taking the things that they like the most out of it and they're putting it on film. They're interpreting it because it is open to interpretation. Like, there's not a hard and fast rule, for example, that says that Macbeth can only be set in the time period in which it was written and can only be spoken, only be performed in its native tongue. <laughs> like, they are people who've used Macbeth as a springboard to do a, a rock opera. There are people who've used, um, um, there are people who've used Hamlet as the basis for an animated movie about lions. Like, you know, you can take that material and place it in different periods of time and place it with different characters and do different things with it. It's why Burra leaped to the idea of doing Thor, because ultimately he, he saw Thor as a Shakespearean figure and as a way to do a Shakespearean movie on a large scale that people would see. It's, you know they are the the legends of our lives and each director gets the opportunity to interpret them the way that they want to interpret it and it's ultimately up to the audience you know you can take um henry the eighth and you can put it in the hands of a crappy community theater director and it's still gonna be entirely and then the the crappy community theater guy can get you know can change the play to the point where like unicorns with rainbows shooting out of their rear ends are replacing all the characters and it's still going to be Shakespeare and it's still going to be up to the audience as to whether or not to accept that interpretation of the material ultimately at the end of the day that's what this is going to come down to you can't judge the, the three different filmmakers the four different filmmakers in modern times can't judge Burton versus Schumacher you can't judge Schumacher versus Nolan can't judge Nolan versus whatever Snyder was doing. He can't judge Snyder off of whatever Affleck was going to do. He can't judge Affleck off of whatever uh, Matt Reeves is going to do. And it's just you got to let these guys ha take whatever angle they're going to take and interpret the story and let the audience decide from there. I'm done. <laughs> uh, well, I'm not going to uh, harp on anything else too much because I, I, I can go on for this for forever. Oh. And what do you think the pet the parents thing is, and do you think it's going to piss fans off? No, because um, they've they've done so many things with the with the with the parents in other media besides the movies. Uh, I mean, if they didn't get too pissed off at what the Joker did to them, which I think is the worst that's ever been done with them, then they should be fine with this. Uh, I. There's uh, the the Batman Telltale Games video series. I think they do something similar with the parents. The death being that there's more to the death than 
you know when I think you find out stuff. I played that game years ago, so I don't remember everything. But I think it's going to be something in that vein. Uh, there are also stories where uh, Thomas Wayne had, uh, at some point does work for the mob. Like he's like the mob doctor for a point or some, something like that. Uh, or, or does business with Falcone. He's thinking his own up and up is really not. They can do any kind of thing like that. But I don't, I don't think it'll, uh, unless they explicitly make the parents part of the mob, I don't think anything would like piss people off. Yeah, I'm also looking forward to tomorrow night to getting Andy Serkis' performance as Alfred. I think that's going to be, you know, Jeremy Irons was his own deal. Um, and of course, um, Michael, uh, not Michael Keat, Michael. Uh, Michael Go. Michael. From uh, Keaton's. From Keaton, no, from. Uh, not from the Keaton and not from the uh, Keaton and, and Schumacher ones, but the uh, or Burton and Schumacher ones, but the one from uh, Michael Caine. M- Michael oh yeah, Michael Caine. Yeah, Michael. Yeah, Michael Caine was his own deal in Dark Knight, um, and solely responsible for making. I'm gonna sit at this little French table because I am sad and I want my boss to have a happy life. And now look, I got to see him have a happy life. Now I walk away and go to beach. Okay, have a nice night. Oh, Open, uh, openly fist bumping in the air when I see the plane blow up, and I'm like, "Yes, he did it. He teased me for two and a half hours. I had to sit through this movie, but I got what I wanted." And then that. Well, I the way Warner Brothers is going, I don't think he's going to be the last one that has the opportunity to kill Batman if he wants to. I I think they will let whatever filmmaker they they have kill Batman because they know they can just reboot it and people are going to accept it. That is what they're going to learn from all of this. Well, the other the other interesting thing to me is that HBO or, or Warner's is all about um, the streaming service because we're in the middle of the streaming wars. They've already greenlit a Gotham PD show for HBO Max based in the world of the Batman. And they did that before, while the Batman was in production. They didn't wait for the film to be done. So uh, they did the same thing with Dune. Um, Bienville is writing and directing a series on the nuns, the group of nuns that uh, that that young that uh, Rachel Ferguson's character is a part of in the first Dune first part of Dune. Uh, they're doing a whole HBO Max series on the nuns, um, or the sisterhood. So, like, it's interesting to me that like you're gambling on. It used to be you just gamble on the movie. Now you're not only gambling on the movie. If the movie isn't a success, then we have this thing that we can we are going to put on a streaming service that now we have no audience for because no one likes. So like it's it's interesting to me how you're already tying those ancillary properties in before you see what the reaction is to the film itself. Well, I mean, it is Warner Brothers. It's not like they haven't put the cart before the horse uh, plenty of times before, but I, I think. No matter what comes out of this movie, I do think the world that that they're creating will be enough to warrant an uh, HBO Max show. So, just uh, for you know, apparent for for information and data sake, the last major DC films release we can both agree uh, was probably Joker, 
because uh, the sui- or the Suicide Squad, probably, right? Yes, that was the last one. So Joker in Russia made uh, $335 million, uh, $335.4 million. In uh, Russia? Uh, 30, 300, 335.4, uh, uh, it was 31% of the total worldwide. In Russia? In Russia. According to the box office mojo that I'm looking at, I did. I did not think they carried that kind of weight in the box office. So that that is the Russian number that I'm I'm looking at. Is thirty one percent of the the total worldwide came from Russia. That that may be an exaggeration, but that's what our good friends know at Box Office Mojo have not behind the paywall. Like I I completely believe you, but Box Office Mojo has lost all of my uh, lost all my faith in them. I'm looking at the numbers uh, movie site that thing. They're, they've been kind of pushing for a box office mojo's uh, a spot with this. And they have it broken down by country. And Russia from them it has Russia at 30 million. Yeah. 30.3. Um, 30.3, okay. And then Russia for the Suicide Squad was 9.1. That, okay, see that that seems about right, and of the and they have theirs broken down in like a bar graph uh, of the international countries, the top ten that they have shown on this graph, Russia is the lowest of the international countries, take and that, it, and it doesn't include this does not include China. Yeah, take that, Putin. That and all of your vodka. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to hurt, but if it's only, like, what, 10% of the total populate, total um, box office of your film, that's not as big of a hit as it could be. The bigger hit would be publicity-wise if you, you know, decide not to because you're trying to make as much money for your film as possible. Uh, yeah. All right. So, Chad, let's move on. The Academy is having its fan vote. Um, your thoughts, sir, on the fan vote and the things that might be taking place for that to blow up in their face. The fact that it exists. Like you've seen the you've seen this the, the early results. Like this is totally gonna blow up in their face, right? This is like uh, there's, there's no way that this cannot and, and by the way, they're stopping the voting a month before the actual on, on March uh Fifth, which I think is seventh, which I think is what's Monday. Um, They're stopping it three weeks before the ceremony, so there's plenty of time to get a statue with a nameplate. What do you have the list of the movies in front of you? I saw it earlier. I just don't have it right now. It was on Twitter. Yeah, that's where I saw it earlier. Okay, I have it. Okay. So it, your fan favorite uh, nominees are Army of the Dead. Cinderella, Doom, Malignant, Minamata, The Power of the Dog, really? Sing 2, Spider-Man No Way Home, The Suicide Squad, Tick, Tick, Boom. 
and the nominees for Oscar cheer moment. Vote on the top five cheer moments uh, via Twitter. The um, nominees are uh, Avengers Assemble, hashtag Avengers Endgame. F.B. White's And I'm Telling You, hashtag Dreamgirls. The Neo Dodging Bullet Scene, hashtag The Matrix. The Team Up Spider-Man Team Up Scene in Spider-Man No Way Home. And last but not least, Flash Speed Force, hashtag Zack Snyder's Justice League. Is that list right? Yep. Uh, and the only reason I ask that be- is because I know Zack Snyder's Justice League doesn't qualify for the fan, the fan favorite uh, thing because I, I forget what rules they use to, to keep it out. But I've seen that list too. And why would it be, why would it qualify for one and not the other? Because th- isn't that cheer moment in both versions? No, 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 no. That flash thing, that's when he uh he turns back time at the end of Snyder's one, which I have issues with, but a lot of people find really insp- inspirational and stuff. I, I don't really care for it that off that much. Uh, but yeah, that is not in, in the the theatrical cut. Theatrical cut, uh he pushes the family in the truck and oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about our friends, the Russian family. Yeah. So I'm confused as to why that's there. But either way, with both of those lists, this is all really stupid. And, the and it's a fan vote to win a chance to trip, uh, win a trip to next year's Oscars. All right. Here's my thing with, with it being a fan vote. My, very, my first thought is because we know that Snyder Snyder's Justice League is not a part of this fan vote. And we know how, no matter what you think of them, a, a core group of them can get organized and do things if they really want to do it. So it is not beyond them to go, I'm not even saying through nefarious means, but to organize their followers and to bomb this vote. I don't know who they will bomb it for, uh, looking at this list, Cinderella's hot. Cinderella well, was early an early contender there. Well, it so it, to 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 me, it's do they want to embarrass the academy or do they want to make sure nothing uh, from like Marvel gets any shine, which would be Spider Man. So, if it really wants to embarrass the academy, yeah, Cinderella is the play. Uh, Spider Man definitely not Suicide Squad definitely not because it's not Zack Snyder, uh, and that's not that's not even them being malicious. That's them just using the system against the Oscars. There are other people that could be like, I just want to screw with the Oscars, and they can do, you know, the um, the bot stuff and just have them bomb one particular thing as the winner. Again, Cinderella seems to be the obvious one, and keep picking on them because I know they were leading at one point and it's nothing against that movie. It's just when they, when they announced this field, when they announced this, this stupid category, the whole reason they did it was because they didn't put Spider-Man in the best picture thing. So they're like, here, we'll give you this frivolous thing and we can recognize Spider-Man on our broadcast and people should be happy 
that a movie they've seen is getting recognized. So there, to me, there's no win. There, there's absolutely no win. If this thing goes according to plan and whoever naturally wins, wins. People are already calling this stupid. Uh, film Twitter is really down on this. Regular people oh, are like... Oh, regular Film Twitter is also very upset about something I am very upset about, which is they went through with their plan to cut categories, which they came very close to doing a few years ago and were embarrassed out of. And this time they're like, they couldn't talk ABC out of it, apparently. So, Well, and, and I'm, I'm going to finish with that in a second, but so yeah, film Twitter's mad. Yeah, film Twitter's mad about the stupid category anyway. And then you throw on top of that that they're cutting categories and still including stupid stuff like this. The regular audience that cares is like, you're only putting this in here to satiate us. Screw you. So nobody, nobody is nobody likes what you've done. And then. So that's just the, the regular stuff. And then if people want to just take advantage of your system and really embarrass you, you there's just no side for you to win on. Now, for the, the cutting categories thing, I think this goes to the larger point that if, if the choice to cut the categories was a choice by ABC, it is ABC's way of saying that we need more, we need to put more butts in seats, give these ratings up. So kill these categories, use this time for something that's more entertaining, more stuff to bring people in because we pay y'all for this and we need these ratings to go back up. Um, and I think the problem with that is this might be the Oscars audience as it was, it's probably never coming back. It'll probably not be as bad as it was last year, but like the forty, they know where to go, but up. Well, they they can they they can still crater some more, and that would be devastating. But I think you will go up some. But it's, you're not getting anywhere. I don't think you get thirty again. So at that point, now it's like, what is the value of this show that is slow, not even slowly, rapidly becoming? as niche as the people that watch the movies that are nominated. What is the value of that show to people that only want ratings? They want to have this live show because it is live, so it should drive ratings. It does not. It only appeals to a certain group of people. What is the value of that show? And I, I, the Academy is going to have to grapple with that sooner rather than later because I think this is their... If they're lucky, they, they grow, but whatever their growth is, is probably the, the max of what they're getting from here on out. I think you also could, and I don't think you anticipate in your calculations there, an entire blowback um, by the core audience that has been keeping the Academy afloat that could result in an even bigger and deeper rating cult. Because now you've not only got the folks who are just going to not watch because you only like the snooty hobnob films and you don't recognize the stuff that I like or I enjoy because you don't want to give us that accreditation. So I'm not going to watch you and I don't care about you. Go fly a kite. 
And then you've got the ones who are over here who are dedicated, who are loyal, who are arvent in that these are we're awarding art and we're we're um, bestowing the honor of best on films because the film and art deserves to be in competition and they these films meet the requirements and all the things. And it's that core group of people that has kept the Oscars afloat. And if you take the 2021 show out, the ratings have been sliding, but they don't crater. They cratered last year. Um, and I and I don't think you can point to any one particular reason. I, I just think that like they hit an off note. And I ABC has no, they have no like authority with me and the reason i say this is because the last time these these kind of concerns came up with ratings was the year in 20 i want to say 2018 the year where uh black panther and all that was nominated but like there was conversation about the last five years of ratings data and the 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 contract for abc was up and the question was what you know what was going to happen and, and the lady you know the president of the academy rolls out right out there in the middle of the broadcast and takes up a whole five minute segment to talk about the new contract they just signed with abc through the year 2025. this was a problem in 2018 it was a problem in 2015 it was a problem in 2010 it was a problem in 20 in 2005. it has been a problem every time you've renewed this contract it has been an ongoing thing pretty much since 1996 that the Academy has skewed more and more and more toward dramas, biopics, um, and, and period pieces. Like the old joke that is standing in Hollywood is, is about the, the uh, Oscar checklist. You know, the reason that the term Oscar bait came up was because the, there was this idea that there was this very formulaic thing that you just had to hit check these boxes and you could all but guarantee yourself an Academy Award nomination because that's how like detailed it had gotten to this little small minutia of film that the Academy was recognizing. Pretty much from the English patient on, that's the kind of movies they've been nominating, the kind of performances they've been nominating, and the ratings have been the ratings for about the last 25 years. And you've looked at those ratings every time the contracts come up and said, yeah, sign us up for seven more years. So now you don't get to come back and say, well, you guys need a kick in the pants and do all these things. Like, no, like our ratings are our ratings. We'll try and fix them as best we can for our own purposes because we don't want to be a laughing stock. We want to remain relevant. We want to remain a part of the conversation. But we're not going to fix them because you're telling us to. You're you're paying us regardless this year, you know? Um, cutting categories is the biggest mistake in the world because you are denying people, the mass audience of people, an opportunity to learn about the filmmaking process and to learn about what these people do and who the hell they are. And when you cut out Film composition. You know, yeah, you may you know who John Williams is, right? You know who, he scores movies, right? He scored a whole bunch of movies that you really like. You know who you don't know? The 95-year-old older guy that John Williams 
who won for Hateful Eight, who John Williams had to help up to get to the podium. You don't know that dude's name. You do now because he won an award and you saw him give a speech. You know, I know who Roger Dinkins is. You know who Roger Dinkins is. But you know what? Grandma Pearl in Wichita, Kansas, doesn't know who Roger Dinkins is. But you know what? When he collected his first official Academy Award, um, she learned about who he is. You know, not all the kids who are going to USC Film School or Columbia Film School um, or UC Santa Barbara Film School are all going to film school to be directors and famous actors. A lot of them are going to be production designers and set decorators. And a lot of them are going to be costume designers and makeup artists. And some of them are learning how to use VFX software so they can go work for a VFX house and create the special effects for these special effects driven movies. Some of them are going to school to learn how to be stunt people. Because, you know, God forbid we give Oscars to stunt people who do a lot of things for a lot of these big name movies. Like, like you're cutting the opportunity for the audience, whether it's the, the old man yell at cloud hardcore audience or whether it's the broader audience of Grandma Pearl in Wichita, Kansas, to learn about new names and new filmmakers and, and new ways of art. These foreign foreign documentary features and foreign docu foreign documentary source subjects, like they're very important, especially right now in this moment. And you're taking away an opportunity for those folks to be seen and to be heard, and for someone to know about their film that they may now go Google or they may now go find on YouTube or, or Netflix, because now their uh, speech has been taped and edited down to, I'd like to thank my mother, and then on to the next person. And, and that's, as our good friend Jim David has said the other night, uh, movies don't make, you know, Jesus, men, movies don't make themselves. Without the set decorators, without the, the craftsmen who build the sets, without the makeup artists, the visual effects artists, um, the gap, the gappers, um, the grips, um, without the camera operators, the lighting director, uh, the lighting technicians, without the cinematographers, the, the movies don't get made. What it's just a story on a it's it's just a written on a page. It's a book without those people, and and to take the opportunity for the world to see and to hear and to learn from them and learn about them is treacherous by the academy because at the end of the day i don't think the problem is that you're right you're running a four-hour show because as the host the hostless shows ran right at three hours the issue is not the musical numbers the issue isn't the length of the show the issue is a complete disconnect with the audience for the kind of movies that are being nominated and specifically the kind of movies that are better winning that's where your disconnect is. And then you as a body have to do something. You've already changed your voting block over. Then you as a body have to sit down and evaluate what you want to do about changing the qualifications, changing the way that the voting is structured, doing something to potentially become more inclusive of broader named movies. So that maybe 
Grandma Pearl in Wichita, Kansas might have actually heard of one or two of the films that are nominated for Best Picture. I can't really add anything today. I think you kind of summed it all up. Um, Not to bash Grandma Pearl. I mean, she's an important and vital part of our demographics here. It, it's just, we talk all the time about the ratings for LA, New York, LA, LA, New York, Chicago, Atlanta. We don't, like, that's not who the Academy is worried about. They're not necessarily worried about the large population centers. They're worried about rural America and losing the modern, like, white conservative woman. Like that's that's the truth of the matter. Like, because those are the people who are buying tickets to go see Marvel movies every week. You know, they're the person who's seen Spider-Man No Way Home four times because they love the movies and there's nothing else playing. Yep. Oh, um, to a point we were talking about earlier, WB has pulled their uh, movies from Russia. As they should. Disney was, they, they were not going to allow Disney to one-up them and put them in that moral uh the moral situation so chad you're gonna have to pilot this podcast for one last long sustained rant by me Uh, so uh, feel free as a movie rap production and let us know that rap production this week (laughs) oh man oh i can't believe that this happened so yeah um you know, if you follow us for any period of time, we've talked about this movie. Uh, it's been literally years now. And both of us have pretty much been like, why is this happening? And I cannot, I cannot believe we're here that today we got the official word that um, a movie produced by Lucasfilm has wrapped. It is not a Star Wars movie, uh, though it does share a star of Star Wars. Um, Brian, today, Indiana Jones 5, rap production. I cannot believe I'm saying those words. And I think you got some feels about that. Uh, I I will quickly get my eyes out the way, and then I'm going to let you go. Uh, It's really just shocked and, and disbelief that we are really in a world where an Indiana Jones was filmed put and is now being put together with... 80-year-old Harrison Ford back as Indiana Jones. I don't know what this madness is going to be. I can only hope it's better than the last one, but I mean, I I mean, I'll be completely honest. I thought the man would die before the film got finished, so I don't know what to say because I didn't think we would be here, but here we are, and now what do you think about all this? So, Chad... Let me get this straight. Let me understand this. So they made a, 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 a Indiana Jones movie. They um, did. It was, it was not written by George Lucas. Was not. It was not directed by Steven Spielberg. Was not. It does not co-star Sean Connery. Uh, unfortunately, he is not with us anymore. It does not co-star John Rhys-Davies. It does not. It does not co-star Shia LaBeouf. Uh, your mileage may vary on that, but no, he is not in this. So there's no mud. Uh, no so there's no mud. No mud. No no Spielberg. No Lucas. Um, no River Phoenix. I'm guessing. Um, again, no longer with us. Amazing, these young dudes ain't 
aren't here, but uh, well, I can't say Sean Connery is young, but Harrison Ford still kicking. So, so here's what we've got: we've got Indiana Jones portrayed by the original actor who loves the role, mm-hmm. who has been campaigning for another round of Indiana Jones. Matter of fact, it was alleged that it was part of the negotiations for him to come back as Han Solo for Force Awakens that they would agree in principle to do a fifth Indiana Jones movie. Um, but it has almost none of the original actors, none of the original parts, and from all varied reports, is another vain attempt to pass the fedora and the whip on to someone else. But in this particular case, not being a male, being a female in a Phoebe Weller-Bridge, also known as the robot who inhabits the Millennium Falcon, <laughs> And um, and that Lando uh, very creepily now says hello, old girl, every time he goes to the Falcon, <laughs> and it now makes much more sense and is also much more much more perverted um, because that man had booty booty with the uh, with a robot. But anyway, um, I digress. We don't know if there are Nazis involved. We don't know if there are Russians involved. We don't know. We all we do know. Kate Blanchett isn't coming back. Um, we do not know if there will be a refrigerator. We do not know if there will be a boat, a, a, a jeep that can magically transform itself into a sub, a, a flotation device. We, <laughs> like um, we don't know if there will be interdimensional beings. Um, there's a whole lot about this film we don't know because production stills have not been free flowing. And let's face it, there hasn't been a huge outpouring of information because there's not a large outpouring of people who want this movie. Now, there have been plenty of movies across the history of space and time that people didn't demand that turned out to be good. And there are a list of sequels where people thought that may not be a good idea. It turned out to be a good idea. Gremlins 2, for example. But, like, on what planet is it a good idea to take Indy out of Spielberg's hands and out of Lucas's hands and out of that aesthetic and give it to the guy who did Logan and Ford versus Ferrari and walk the line. Like nothing about that filmography, just those three films alone, nothing about that filmography suggests, yeah, this is the guy to take over the action adventure franchise, you know, uh, of the eighties, nothing about that. Um, why? Why are we here? Why are we not do? Why didn't we? Why did we not jump to a young Indiana Jones Chronicles? Why didn't we just reboot the whole damn thing with old man, old man Harrison Ford sitting in his rocking chair on the porch swing, doing the young Indiana Jones thing and talking about it the old times? I, I haven't asked for that. Uh, right, rights issues because they were both li- they were all Lucasfilm. I don't know, nothing like that. It's all because of Harrison Ford. As this quote says, this is Harrison Ford. I'm Indiana Jones. When I'm gone, he's gone. Period. So that's why. Because Harrison Ford feels he is Indiana Jones and nobody else should be Indiana Jones. So as long as he's alive, he's kind of made it where they won't do another. They won't let somebody else be Indiana Jones. Remind me, because it's been a few decades since I've seen uh, the crapola that is Crystal Skull. Um, doesn't Mutt pick up the hat at one point? Doesn't the wind, like, blow the fedora his way? 
and he picks it up and holds it briefly and then he kind of winks at him and says not today kid and picks it up from him yes now the caveat to that is mutt is a entirely new character not indiana jones i think he's fine with somebody else like spiritually taking on the mantle of this adventurer which I is what he's gonna have to do with phoebe weller bridge yes but i think for him the the name the character indiana jones is him and is going with him when he go meet his maker and nobody else is having it that that's that's his that's his stance on indiana jones so he's going to hold the fedora and the bullwhip all the way up to that great that great ranch in the sky and he's no taking it with gonna, him and no one's gonna take it. i mean when they, when they put him up in that coffin it's gonna be right on his head and right in his hands y'all can't have it you ain't taking it from me you know pry it out of my cold dead hands as moses once said yeah um Look, I can't, I can't get my mind around this. Five was so bad. Four was so bad. Like four was literally the product of a bunch of guys who wanted to make a film but didn't know how to do it. But they were desperate to do another another Indiana Jones movie, and they, you can call it a cash grab. I just call it like a, a reminiscence to it. It's like Crazy Uncle Dan getting getting together with Harold Ramis and Ivan Reitman, both rest in peace now, I, I, and the um in the in the uh martha's vineyard every summer trying to crack a story on a third ghostbusters movie that everybody can get behind eventually it stopped becoming a serious exercise and just became an excuse for them to sit around drink wine and tell stories about the good old days and that's essentially what happened on four they won an extent and an excuse to together Fort ford was still young enough to do the stunts like he wanted another go at it I mean, I remembered specifically the sadness in my heart the day that Sean Connery was like, no, nah, I'm retired from acting. I won't be part of this. Um, because Last Crusade is my favorite. It's, it's the Indiana Jones film I've seen the most. It is my favorite Indiana Jones film. And I know Raiders is so much more cinemal to what the blockbuster culture of today is and, and all of that. But like the father-son aspect of last crusade is is all is just awesome for me and i enjoy that that movie way more than any of the other two and so i'm so hyped up and i'm amped up and i've got my father who never goes to movies with me there with me opening night and i'm and i'm just crestfallen as i'm sitting here watching this film and it just it you should have tied george to a chair and told him to do something other than the martians because that's essentially the original title for the original treatment when he wrote it was indiana jones and the martians it literally said the Martians in the title. Okay, this was what he wanted to do. Interdimensional beings, extraterrestrials. And it's not like, you know, Spielberg has any any problems with that kind of thing, right? He's made multiple movies about out of space visitors, a couple of very famous ones, Close Encounters and E.T. So I mean, I I just don't know that I want this especially considering I got the lightning bolt that was River Phoenix for that opening scene in, in Last Crusade, that I got the Indiana, Young Indiana Jones Chronicles now available to stream exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. I saw, I have the journal, I see ways and pathways for that franchise to be viable without him. And I just, like, he can be a part of it, but I don't necessarily know that I need this 
I'm glad that they're going to pass it to a woman. I'm glad that it'll be progressive in that way. But because the franchise does have a, a history of both damsels in distress and strong female characters. So, I, you know, I just, I don't need this. Who needs this? Who, who is the audience for this other than the contract, the, the contract negotiator who is being held hostage by Harrison Ford to demand that he get this contractually obligated? Well, I mean, that's a great question. For, for, for context, Chad, they announced Indiana Jones 5. On the same day, they announced Episode 7 in the acquisition of the Lucasfilm cell. October of 2012. It is now checks watch March first, two thousand and twenty-two. <laughs> a decade, a full ten years since this movie was originally announced in a press release. In case you yeah. haven't noticed, a lot's happened in Hollywood in the last decade. I knew that that was in that press release, but it's not until somebody tells you that. Yes, it was really there, and. Wow, we're it's I, I, again. I just can't. I I never thought we get here. Like when that press release came and went, and you know, a few years passed by. It's like, well, that's kind of out the window the way they wanted to do it. But here we are. They they managed the way to do it. But yes, who wants to see this? Uh, I don't. The thing with Indiana Jones for me. I know lots of us grew up with it. The generation before us, they that is like like staples in in their filmography. But the people below us, most of them weren't born the last time. Well, I keep thinking of the last Crusade. It's the last Indiana Jones movie. So most well, of them were born. Was, last Crusade was eighty nine, right? Eighty nine or ninety, and it's, then then it has to be eighty nine. Yeah, eighty nine or ninety, and then, and then uh, Crystal Skulls two thousand and five. So, most people below us weren't born the last time there was a good Indiana Jones movie that came out. So they don't have the affinity for the character. So this is largely a nostalgia play above anything else. So what other hook do you have to get other people into it? I, I don't know. So I'm not saying that Indiana Jones should be like dead and dormant, but. It's not like Star Wars where Filoni was given the keys to the kingdom in the, in, you know, after the sequel trilogy was over and Star Wars animation was its own thing and Star Wars video games were once again their own thing. And he was over here painting a whole new picture with Clone Wars on Cartoon Network. And then once that ended, then he started did the, in, in the, in the, in the uh, Disney acquisition happened. Then he took his talents to Disney, uh, what was it, Disney Kids or Disney Plus? Uh, not Disney Plus. Disney Kids or Disney Channel proper. Disney XD. Was, Disney XD or Disney XL, something like that, where they did Rebels for another three years after that. And that became cult canon for all those people, right? All these people who are overjoyed on Twitter every time a new Mandalorian episode comes on or a new character is introduced in the Mandalorian, it's because they know them from the animated stuff. That didn't happen with Indiana Jones. There was the Indiana Jones 
after you have Last Crusade, you have the the Chronicles of Young Indiana Jones television series that aired for exactly a season and a half, uh, produced by Rick McCallum, and star not starring River Phoenix, but starring younger actors, other actors, younger actors. And it does follow some of the events of the journal, but not all of them. And that only lasts for a season and a half. And then you don't get anything until Crystal Skull. You get no Indiana Jones comic books. You don't get Indiana Jones graphic, uh, uh, you know, uh, novels. You don't get novelizations. You don't get uh, Indiana Jones Saturday morning cartoons. You don't get any of that. You just get the movies. And it's one of the few properties Lucas owned where outside of the selling fedoras and bullwhips, he never really looked to market it or advertise it or, or drain life from it. You know, he just kind of was like the movies are the movies and then they're very important to me and that's it. And so it's different from Star Wars in that way that like there is this large dormant period. Star Wars may have had dormant periods, but there was still a whole bunch of content being produced. Indiana Jones had long dormant periods and there was no content being produced. So therefore there's no fan base because the fan base had nothing to latch on to from the time that they were young. Yeah, that's the thing yeah, with Star Wars. Even in even in the years when, you know, we thought we would never get any more movies after Return of the Jedi, it the it just kept going with the the now with the extended universe stuff, all those books. They still had toys. They started venturing into games, and all that was enough until we got the uh, the prequels. Well, we got the the extended editions, which led to the prequels. And then once you get the prequels, you get, again, then we start rolling into the good stuff with the Clone Wars and all that stuff. So Star Wars, while George only made the movies, the rest of the lore kept building. Like yeah, he, leased it, he leased it out to other people. He didn't, yeah, prosecute, he didn't prosecute the YouTubers who were you know, making fan films. He let them do whatever they wanted. If there was an author that wanted to take a crack at a New Republic novel, he was going to say, okay. He wasn't going to let anybody be excluded from the sandbox. If you came in, you had a good idea, he was willing to back you. And that was a great way to keep the, the interest going and, and actually build it to this, to the point where it became, it really cemented itself in pop culture, in, in the culture period. Indiana Jones doesn't have that. And a lot of things don't have that. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just Avatar doesn't have that. And we're getting four more sequels. Yes. And I I I think they are better suited to succeed than Indiana Jones is. Actually, let me not say that. I they think, both had Disney, they both had Disney theme park attractions. Yeah. And so I, I think they're I think they're about the same, which kind of says something about Avatar because it's been 13 years and I'm putting it on par with a franchise that's the best of it was 20 plus years ago but I think they'll do about what and what Avatar should do a little bit better because of the spectacle of it all but it, it's I I don't think making this movie is a bad thing I think the the just the image or the thought of Harrison Ford still sticking around for Indiana Jones and not really letting it go is kind of what makes the whole thing feel, you know, shaky to me. 
Indeed. So it'll be interesting to see once we start seeing footage and that kind of a thing of what kind of movie that they've actually made. It'll be just be an interesting uh, mangle. Just mangle's an interesting post Spielberg choice. Um, the writing group on it is a post uh, is an interesting interesting choice. And there and um, you know Phoebe Waller Bridge is hilarious and helped punch up some of the No Time to Die stuff. And we know what she did, was able to do in Fleabag and. Uh, and in solo so very very good comedic actor very brilliant writer as a whole so it'll be interesting to see uh what they come up with but that'll about do it for this week's episode if you want to keep up with this podcast you can follow us on twitter i am at bcw tiger fan at the mets theories thank you very much and let's all flock to the bat pad